congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke 16. More specifically, we're going to be looking at the parable of the shrewd manager. When we look at and we read scripture, we try to pattern our life through what we read. And then we read Luke 16 and we say, you can't be serious. We may think there's something lost here in the translation. You ever had one of those moments when it seems like the conversation around you is spoken in a different language? You're so far out of the loop that you just have no idea what's going on? Kind of like the whole room gets the joke that someone just told and you have absolutely no idea what everyone's laughing at. You ever been there? I have a short uh, video clip to show you. Uh, It's from the movie Crocodile Dundee. Hey, my man, what's happening? Uh, Wait. What's going down, bro? Going down. Oh, yeah, just blowing the froth off a couple. All right. Hang loose, my man. Let out like a lizard drinker. Say what? What? (laughs) He's cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. All right. All right. Nothing like two conversations going on and neither one has any idea what the other is saying. <clears throat> you know, once in a while we might feel that we might feel like those two actors in that clip. And we're just left speechless because we have no idea what the other person's saying. And the parable we're going to look at today also has tendency to leave many of us speechless. As speechless as Buzzy in that scene. Frankly, as I first read this parable, I was left a little speechless too. Let's read it together, shall we? Luke 16, verses 1 through 11. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked them first, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. But the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind Then are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Congregation, when I originally started doing research on this parable, I came across a phrase in more than one commentary that made me stop and think, actually rethink. Rethink proceeding. And he said this, this is the most difficult parable in Luke. And I thought, great. Why exactly am I proceeding? And yet, try as I might, I just couldn't put it down. I felt led, I felt compelled to continue on, to grasp it a little bit better. The truth is, this is a difficult parable. But that doesn't mean we should overlook it. Often as believers, we like to focus on the easy or easier passages to understand. Those are the ones we like to meditate, we like to focus on, maybe claim them as our life verses. That's fine. But if we do that, and if we ignore or bypass the tough passages, brothers and sisters, we shortchange ourselves. And we also, I believe, shortchange God. Just because they take some extra time to understand, does that mean we should ignore them? Not at all. In fact, we are blessed as we struggle through them. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we ought to look, even at the difficult passages, the difficult parables, and see what message God has for us to teach us, to train us, to correct us, and yes, even at times to rebuke us. You know, when you read parables, sometimes, and maybe most often, we read them in an allegorical way. That is, we try to identify the characters within that parable. We may try to see who in this parable it is that is depicting God. Who is Jesus? Who might be the locals of the day, and how does that apply to that parable? One such parable that we read in this way is the sower. In Matthew 13, where Jesus explains afterwards to the disciples in perfect clarity the four places a seed fell and how that related to the seed of the Word of God. <clears throat> well, don't do that with this one because it's not one of those parables. The very first thing we need to pay attention to in this parable comes in the first word or words, depending on the translation you're using. Older translations start this this chapter off with saying, moreover, or he, as Jesus, also said. In our, in our NIV, you know, as it just said, Jesus said. But these two things I just mentioned are evidence of a continuum of a conversation from the previous chapter. As we know, and we've talked before, how we sometimes pay too much attention to the chapter separations in our Bible. Those were not originally there, of course. So as we turn back to verse 1 of chapter 15, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
You can see that Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in that discourse. But now in chapter 13, it says, Moreover, he turns to the disciples and he's speaking about money matters. But all this takes place as the Pharisees are still within earshot. This is evidence in verse 14 with our target chapter. When they scoffed at Jesus for his remarks, which is to mock or ridicule. Because as the Bible says, they, that is the Pharisees, love their money. Our previous chapter is about the prodigal son. The tie to this previous chapter is in the parallel of wasting resources that were at their disposal. Unlike the prodigal son, this man is looking to secure his future. The big difference here is that this parable is not about finding or restoring the lost. This parable instead deals with life. Life and living out discipleship of those who are found. The application is, of course, originally meant for the disciples. When we first read this parable, we sit back in shock, for the parable seems to elevate this manager as someone to be emulated. If we do that, we'd be clearly missing the point. This dishonest man was not commended for his dishonesty, but for taking firm, dogged action in a time of crisis. Let me say it again. We don't want this misunderstood. This dishonest man is not commended for his dishonesty, but for taking firm, dogged action in a time of crisis. We start to unpack this parable as the servant is found out, as it were. The servant has just been told he's released of his duties, and the landowner wants him to bring in his books for examination. The master, in a sense, is saying, let's see how bad of a mess you've made of my estate. As we study this, we get a little deeper. To do that, we also need to understand a little of the activities in which his servant was engaged. We do this in relation to the practices of the days and the times of the writing. Our customs add little, very little to biblical interpretation, but their customs bring much into light in how we interpret and how we imply Scripture to our lives. You see, according to the Old Testament law, not only the servant, but the master too had a problem. Exodus 25, 22, verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Leviticus 25, 36, do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear the Lord your God, so that you may continue to live among them. Deuteronomy 23, 19, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. So you see, the Jews were forbidden to take interest from their fellow Israelites. And Martindale Commentary explains that those who wanted to skirt this law and make money from loans did so by reasoning that this law was initiated to prohibit exploitation of the poor. It was not meant, they decided, to forbid innocent legal transactions that were mutually beneficial. They understood it, or rather they justified it, that if a man had a little oil or a little wheat in his house, He could not be acknowledged as destitute. And therefore, 
it was a legal transaction. Since pretty much everyone had at least a little oil and a little wheat in their home, no one was destitute. And so it was all fair and good in their eyes to take advantage of whomever they felt. We can see what, a, what an absolute farce was made of this law. Interest was added to the commodity that was borrowed. By the law, if you borrowed 100 gallons of oil, you repaid 100 gallons of oil to the owner. But more often than not, that became 120, say. And then once the stewards got a hold of it, that might go up to 140 or 160 gallons. Yet still, the record shows just 100. All this was done by the steward, supposedly, without the owner's knowledge or consent. But all the while, everyone knew it was quite the opposite. So what did this manager do to save his skin? This is one of those areas of this parable that makes it so tough to understand. There are two schools of thought on his action. One is the manager was dishonest in reducing the bills of his master's creditors, but was thinking ahead. So Jesus commends his crafty, forward-looking use of resources. Or two, the manager may have been dishonest earlier, but in reducing the bills, he is simply cutting out his own hefty commission in the hope of goodwill later. As the writer states, either could be correct. But if you look at the latter option, he cuts himself out of the bill short term so these people that he knows will have compassion on him long term. Then Jesus' point is not based on dishonesty. And in fact, it illustrates Jesus' point to use the resources God has given us wisely and generously. Back to the parable. The fact is that the owner was in a bit of a pickle. You see, he could not legally chase down the accounts and get his money back. Because if he did, it would implicate himself in charging interest, which we just read was against the law. The owner's only recourse was to dismiss the steward, but commend him to others. In so doing, he keeps face with the community. At first look, when we come to the end of this parable, when the scripture says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. We might be taken aback, maybe even left speechless. Does that mean he honors a man for being dishonest? How is that keeping in the word of God? So what exactly is meant by this text? The master commended the dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. As said by T.W. Manson, there is a big difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly, and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. I'll say it again, it almost sounds a little convoluted. I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly, or I applaud the clever steward, because he acted dishonestly. So exactly what does this master, why does this master commend his servant? Does the master commend him for dishonesty? By no means. The master commends the steward because when things are falling apart, when things are failing, when his servant sees his financials, his financials reduced to rubble, He acts in a way that will give him security. 
When the servant was faced with certain ruin, he took action that would ward off his certain demise. How about us? Do we understand our own certain ruin? Do we understand what we must do? For the dishonest manager, it was his financial ruin that he was facing. For us, is a recognition that we are lost in sin. As we were reminded in Article 1 of the Canons of Dort, for all have sinned, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. Even the good we do is not good. According to Isaiah 64, we are unfit to worship you. Each of our good deeds is merely a filthy rag. We dry up like leaves. Our sins are storm winds sweeping us away. So now do we see? And do we understand our spiritual ruin? It was our shrewd manager's foresight and resourcefulness that are commended, not his dishonesty. The key to understand this parable lies within the parallels of verse 4 and verse 9. verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people welcome me into their houses. Our servant has recognized his dire circumstance and understands he must do something if he's to survive. We too understand that something must be done to ensure our future. The biggest difference is our future is not dependent on what we do. Our future is dependent on what Christ has done for us. 1 John 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Our steward's greatest asset is his mind, his cunning mind. He takes quick stock of his assets. He knows he is not a strong man, so physical labor is out of the question for him. And also recognizes within himself that he is too proud to beg. He knew he must act quickly. The master has already demanded to see his books. What will he do? He will use his greatest asset. Who knows my master's debtors better than I? So with a quick, keen mind, he makes his master's debtors his debtors. By eradicating their monetary debt, they would owe him big. And when, was he, when he was without monetary means, he would collect. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. So when it's gone, <clears throat> you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's a really tough verse where many of us shy away from this passage. Just as in this age one may engage in business practices that may guarantee one's financial future, so also for the age to come, one must engage in practices that guarantee their heavenly home. Speaking specifically into this verse, Jesus' followers must use their money for spiritual purposes, just as wisely as the children of this world do for the material gain. As our goal is treasure in heaven, we should use our money for purposes as tithing, Christian day schools, Christian post-secondary educations. This will gain us friends and it will in our stand to give us good stead when money fails. Like after we pass and money is of no value. 
<clears throat> the meaning of that, that phrase, that friends may receive you into return, eternal life. Maybe the friends that we welcome us to heaven. This can be problematic for some believers. The idea that friends are somehow welcoming us into heaven is more probable, says a commentary, that we have a common Jewish use of the plural friends to mean God. This is in accordance with their tendency not to write down the divine name. Because after all, it's not our acquaintances, but God alone who receives us into heaven. When he speaks in Matthew 2, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome. Share your master's happiness. At the end of the day, the clear message we are left with, and I quote this piece from John MacArthur, the just steward uses his master's money to buy earthly friends. We believers are to use our money's, our master's money in a way that will accrue friends for eternity by investing in the kingdom gospel that brings sinners to salvation so that when they arrive in heaven, we'll be together in our eternal home. Christ did not commend the dis, man's dishonesty. He pointedly called him unjust. He only used him as an illustration to show that even the most wicked sons of this world are shrewd enough to provide for themselves against coming evil. Believers are to be more shrewd because they are concerned with eternal matters, not just earthly ones. For us to be fully assured in our security, we invest in Christ on the basis of our faith in him. At the beginning of this message, I spoke of how, when we look at parables, we may try to emulate a character within that parable, and that this parable was not one of them, not one with a character to emulate. Well, that is true. We are still called to emulate the lesson that Jesus had first for his disciples of the day. But the lesson is also for us today. With the same zeal that the steward used to secure his future, we must also use to remain close to him who holds our future, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we we draw nigh to you once again, Lord, as we we look at this parable, this tougher parable, and and we unpack it, and we we see, Lord, it's not the things that we do for our future security, Lord, but we put our faith in our trust in you. You have secured our future. And in that hope, we live, we breathe, and we remain. Lord, we pray that you would help us keep that in focus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.